Um, our uh, kids that would like to go to the kids' lesson are more than welcome right now to head on to uh, the back lobby, and they'll be taken up uh, for that. For the rest of us, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark uh, this morning as we continue our series, Follow the King. Uh, we'll be in chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there or pull it up on your um, device. Um, we've been seeing most recently a series of interactions, we'll call them, that Jesus is having um, with different religious leaders. Starting back at the end of chapter 11, we saw the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they came and they were questioning his authority. Last week, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians come and they were questioning him about taxes. They were trying to really, as we saw, trap him. Next week, we'll see the scribes come to dispute with him. And this week, it's the Sadducees. So there's a series of back to back to back of people coming to question Jesus and ultimately to trap him so that it will ultimately lead to his death. With that in mind, and with, let's turn to, to Mark 12. Why don't we do that now? Mark 12 and verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman, she also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And then Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, you are quite wrong. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your words before us this morning and Jesus' words. Oh, would you use them? Would you convince us this morning of the truth? Would you particularly convince us this morning of the truth of the resurrection? Would you teach us even to long for that day? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as, as we approach the text this morning, we need to say a little something about the Sadducees. This is the first time they've shown up in the Gospel of Mark. Who are these people? We don't know tons about them, actually. Um, we do learn, though, a little bit right here in our text, right? Verse 18, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. So here we learn a little bit about them. They don't believe in an afterlife. They, 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 they don't believe in any sort of resurrection. They believe this is all that they have. And you wonder, well, where does this come? How do they believe this? Because the Old Testament teaches about the resurrection. And part of it seems to be that they only held to the first five books. They only believed that the books of Moses were Scripture. And so they only looked to them. And there's really very little mention of the resurrection there. 
Now, to learn a little bit more about him, we could go to Acts 23. There we learn that for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You, you see, it's even more. It seems like they don't believe in much of anything that's supernatural, <laughs> right? No angels, no spirits. In their day, they're likely a relatively small group, but they're a small group that actually had gained quite a bit of power because they gained sway with the people who had. They gained sway with the people who had money. And so with that, they had pretty good power. And this group, they come in our text today to, to trap Jesus. And, and yet, as they come, and as we think about the, the previous interactions we've already seen, the interaction we're going to see next week, I'm just reminded of Jesus' incredible patience of dealing with these people. Remember, he's dealing with people who he knows are plotting his death, and yet he still entertains their questions. I was thinking about one of my former youth from back at a former church. She's actually now at, um, um, she's performing in uh, The Miracle Worker. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a play about Helen Keller's life. And she is actually playing the part of Ann Sullivan, Okay. And I was just thinking about that, like Ann Sullivan, like if you've ever seen the movie or if you've ever seen the play before, Ann Sullivan is so incredibly patient and persistent with Helen Keller, even amidst her battling and literally fighting her off, right? Until you get to that one moment where finally Helen Keller gets it, you know, that moment at the well, and she begins to understand it. That's reminded just a little bit, a little bit of picture of how patient Jesus is with all these people who are coming. I mean, you see how they come. Verse 19, teacher, they say. They call him, they have the gall to call him teacher. They call him teacher, yet what, are they, what is their entire intent? Their entire intent is to actually, by telling their story, they want to make fun of him. They want to put him, they, they, they want to just show him how silly his beliefs are. They think they've got him. They're seeking to trap him. And yet, as we see, we'll see, Jesus responds. He, he responds with truth, and he responds boldly, but he is patient with them. I think we could learn a lot from Jesus, couldn't we? These Sadducees, they come, they're, they're kind of playing, as we, as we look at their question, they're, they're kind of playing stump the teacher, okay? This question that they ask Jesus about this, this woman who ends up having all of these spouses, it was probably a popular question in their day. It was probably one that the Sadducees used as a gotcha for the Pharisees. And, and no Pharisee had ever really come up with a really good response to it. You know, it was their one that they, you know, they, they sat around, you know, they were just waiting. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, how many angels can you get on the, uh, the head of a needle? You know, it's like that, that kind of silly question. And that's what, what they, they have here. And so they come and they ask Jesus this silly question, teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring. And then they, they go on to explain this, you know, this lady who's, who's married to seven different brothers. And, and then at the end, the woman dies and they ask the question, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as wife. Um, now, now, they're basing this off of, of course, Moses' um, statement. Um, regarding Levite marriage, right? Where this was a protection for, for women in the day, a means of protecting them. And they're taking this, and they're taking it to an absurd end. 
I don't know if any of you have ever watched The Big Bang Theory. Um, but there are um, two characters who are, who are roommates in it, uh, Leonard and, and Sheldon. If you haven't watched it, Sheldon is like the super, super logical one. Everything has to be thought of logically. And this day comes where there's one of their friends needs a place to stay, a, a couch to crash on for the night. And it ensues with this discussion between Leonard and Sheldon about can they do this? And, and, and Sheldon's concern is, well, what if there is an earthquake? If there's an earthquake, our, our emergency kit for earthquakes is only for two people for 48 hours. If we have somebody stay, then, then, then what do we do if there's an earthquake? You know, so he takes this to a kind of silly end, but then his room, roommate takes it to even a more silly end and saying, well, what you're really concerned about is, is that we get there and this happens and then we're going to have to be faced with you know, being cannibals or something. You know, he, he takes it to like just the most absurd impossible. And then for those of you who watch the show, you'll, you'll, you'll understand this. Sheldon responds with this. He says he's engaging in reductio ad absurdum. It's the logical fallacy of extending someone's argument to ridiculous proportions and then criticizing the result. And I don't appreciate it. You see, they don't both take a crazy thing and they, they take it even farther. And isn't this what the Sadducees are doing? They're, they're taking a question. They, wouldn't it have been fine? Couldn't you just ask about one, bro, two brothers? Why do you got to ask about seven? You're taking it to an absurd end. It's a very uncharitable way to argue. It might inform us a little bit. Maybe I think sometimes we might do that to others, people who we disagree with, maybe people who we rightfully disagree with, and we reduce their arguments to extreme caricatures that don't really represent them. And that's, that's what these people are, are, are doing with Jesus, these Sadducees are doing. But in an even greater sense, what their question reveals here, it, it kind of unmasks the Sadducees. It reveals them for who they are. Why are they so concerned with this question? What, why are they so concerned with taking Jesus down? It's because of what he stands for. It's, they're, they're ultimately trying to defend their own power they're trying to defend their own pocketbooks, okay? And so they'll do anything, and they'll reach out in any way. So they ask the question, but Jesus responds, and he responds boldly, doesn't he? Verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? I mean, he holds no punches. Isn't this the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's not afraid to address error and call it what it is. Now, we do need to be careful of just taking that to any sort of error. Sometimes we can be guilty of that, right? Jesus here, he's talking about a pretty important error, right? The resurrection, not believing in the resurrection, that is a central truth. One that is not to be played with or toyed with. It doesn't mean that we should just follow this in any sort of error, but in really important ones, we have to stand up for them, right? And how does Jesus say that he's, he's doing this? You, you know neither the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures he's telling them. He says, what you're doing, not believing the resurrection, you're denying the scripture itself. You've gone and you've carved up a portion of the scriptures that you like, those first five books of Moses, and you've thrown everything out, else out. You're only holding to those first five books. Are they only holding to them? Maybe because they contain the truths that they agree with. You know, they're carving out the parts that, that line up with their life, with the, their approach to life. Should it be a surprise to us, in a way, that the group that consists of the people who have? Okay, that's what the Sadducees said. They would have been the people who had. 
They had lots. Should it be a surprise to us that those people who had a lot have a theology that doesn't include an afterlife? Do, do you know what I mean? They, they don't need to be worried about, they need to be worried about now. They need to be worried about how to, how to spend everything they have now. I'm reminded of my aunt. Now, she may be watching right now. and um, Anyway. Um, but, and my kids have latched onto this. I don't know how many times I've now heard it at the dinner table about what their aunt says, that she said on multiple occasions, if I spend it all before I die, I win. Um, I think she's joking. I'm pretty sure she is. I help her with her finances, so I, I'm pretty sure. I can say that she is, okay? Um, but the point is, that's, a lot, that's the kind of thing that our world believes in and buys into. That's the kind of thing that the Sadducees buy into and believe in. We believe the lie that all good things must come to an end. Have you ever said that? All good things do not come to the end. That's the lie of the Sadducees. How do we apply this to ourselves? What does this look like for us? How do we deny the scriptures? One pastor puts it this way. He says, be careful if there are any sections of the Bible that fit your personality. They wear well with your preferences, your past experiences, or your pleasures. And you hide behind those with an adamance in order to avoid the ones that don't wear quite so well. You ever do that? Hide behind them. And we, Peter shared something similar last week. You know, we hide behind the ones that we like. The ones that we don't like so much, we you know, kind of put them off to the side. Just by way of example, and, and this kind of maybe catches us all, I, I don't know. Maybe, are, are you the type of person on the one side who, who hides in your goodness? Hides in, you know, God has given us commands. We, we must keep them. We must do them. I got to be good enough. And, and, and we work really hard at being really good because we feel like we have to make God happy with us. And at the whole time, denying the incredible grace of our God, denying how sinful you really are and how much you desperately need Him and how your salvation comes from Him and Him only. Or maybe you're also on the other side, though. Of, well, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm saved by grace alone. There's nothing I can do to save myself. And then we take that to a terrible, terrible end of saying, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. And so you don't sit under the parts of Scripture that, that inform us how we as believers are called to live. Not called to live to save ourselves, but called to live because the gospel is true, because we've been saved, because we've been rescued, because he has already rescued us. Therefore, we're called to go on living. We, we, we struggle with this. We, we hide behind the parts of Scripture we like, and we kind of throw out the parts that we don't. So Jesus says you don't look to Scripture, but you also, you also what? You, you also don't believe in the power of God. We mentioned earlier, when you look at the Sadducees, what is it that they the things that they didn't believe in, they seem to be primarily supernatural things, right? Okay, angels and uh, spirits and an afterlife, the resurrection. These are the kind of things they didn't believe in. They begin to almost sound like naturalists. Do you know what I mean when I say that? People who, like, whatever we believe, we have to be able to explain through our senses, right? That the kind of people who deny anything supernatural. Now, they weren't that, but 
what Jesus hints at is something very close, isn't it? He, he says to the, the Sadducees, at the root of your disbelief in the resurrection is the fact that you don't believe in the power of God. You don't believe that He can actually do it. You don't believe that He can actually resurrect the dead. Your view of God is too small. I fear that many of us often have a view of God that is too small. Maybe it's we, we think somehow that he has some lacking in ability, maybe to do the supernatural, maybe even the kind of thing that we're looking at this morning of the resurrection and just how incredible it is. But it also comes down to very personal things, personal things that take place in our heart where we struggle to even trust him, where we don't believe that he is powerful enough. I mean, are, are there places in your life where you, where you struggle to believe that he is really powerful enough to make this mess good? And bring it to a good conclusion? You struggle to believe in his power. As we struggle sometimes to believe in his word as well. Well, now, what we want to do is we want to look at, Jesus goes on then to tell them about the resurrection. And he wants to share with us some really important truths about the resurrection. I want us to see three things. And I, and I know that's worrying because we're like over half halfway through the sermon here, and now I'm giving you three points, and this isn't good, but uh, we'll move quickly. But he, he shares with us first the truths about the resurrection, okay? We're going to see the grounding of that resurrection, and then finally, hopefully, the reality of that resurrection. What, is, what does Jesus say? He says, when, when they rise from the dead, okay? It's a fact. Jesus is making sure unequivocally they understand. He believes the resurrection is true. It is a fact. It is going to happen, period. But then he goes on to, in a way, answer their question about this marriage stuff that they have brought up. He says, your, your problem is you don't even understand what marriage is. You completely misunderstand it. He says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You don't understand marriage's design. Let's look at Ephesians 5 real quick. This, this might help us out. In Ephesians 5.31, we're, we're going to see Paul quote, and make sure you understand this and get this, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. His quote is from before the fall. Okay? And this is what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay? Before the fall, this was the the structure of marriage, to become one flesh. And then Paul goes on to say this. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All the way back to Genesis 2. It refers to Christ and the church. What he's saying, Sadducees, you don't understand the design of marriage. You see there's an original and there's a copy. The original is Christ and His church. And our marriages are, are but copies, are but pictures of that marriage between Christ and the church. Paul is saying that original union, even of Adam and Eve, was meant to be but a picture of Christ and His church. Do we understand that? That our marriages are to point to something greater, our union with Him. So we look forward to that day. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made 
herself ready. You see, it's our marriages. If we're asking the question, are we going to still be married in heaven? He's he's saying you're not thinking big enough. You you don't understand the original design of marriages is to point to something much greater, something much greater that you will get to enjoy for all of eternity. Now, I know this hits some of us hard, okay? Some of us, you may not like this truth, or maybe some of you like it, and that's not good either. If um, Some of you got that. Um, but if we don't like it, if, if we struggle with it, we need to understand that maybe we're having a similar problem to the Sadducees, where we lack an understanding of Scripture. And, and, and ultimately, we're not trusting in the power of God that somehow that us no longer taking our earthly relationships into heaven is going to be good and even better and more glorious. R.C. Sproul gives this illustration. He was, um, when he was in seminary, um, there was a guy who came to speak at chapel. And the guy came and he attacked everything about the Reformed faith, which R.C. Sproul believes in very adamantly, right? And, And as he was walking out of chapel, he was talking with one of his professors. And he said this, he said, if John Calvin could have heard that address, he would have turned over in his grave. You know, one of the reformers that we, we, we look to at times. He said he'd have been turning over in the grave if he heard what that guy was saying about the Reformed um, doctrines. And then Dr. Gerstner, his professor, responded and he said this. He said, young man, don't you know that nothing could possibly destroy the felicity that John Calvin enjoys at this moment? Did you hear what he said? We, we don't understand the depth of joy and the delight that God has prepared for us in the future. We think too small. We think way too small. And so Jesus says to them, they'll neither marry nor given in marriage, but you're going to be like angels in heaven. Now this doesn't mean you're like Clarence, you know, and the bell rings and you get your wings. That's not what he's talking about. He's focusing on both the fact that angels, they're, they're not married, plus the fact that what are they doing? They're, they, they're eternally worshiping and glorifying and enjoying the presence of our great God. Now, so there's some important truths that we, we, we need to grasp and we need to understand. And, and the way that, that Jesus pulls it apart is, is beautiful. Is he, he calls us to something much greater and understand that there's something so much greater ahead of us than we could ever imagine. We think too small. Sadducees, you're thinking way too small. Why are you worried about who you're going to be married to? Now, Jesus also gives them the grounding, doesn't he? He tells them, he, he, and he speaks to the Sadducees where they're at because where does he quote from? He quotes from the book of Exodus. He quotes from one of those first five books that the Sadducees actually held to. And what does he say? He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, we might be apt to think for a moment that all of this pinges on a verb tense. He is. Okay? The, the problem is, is, that is, doesn't actually exist in the Greek text or the Hebrew text. It's not there. There is no verb there. Okay? 
It's basically, I, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. It's not about the verb tense, okay? What Jesus is saying, I think, is actually something much, much greater, okay? He's saying that the resurrection and, and the truth that Moses was getting across in Exodus 3, it stands on the very character of the covenant God. The covenant God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Remember, where are they? Moses is there at the burning bush. He's being introduced to Yahweh. Yahweh tells him in his name that he is the great I am. He is the Lord. He is the living God. And the living God is not going to identify himself by the dead. He's identifying himself by his covenant relationship. With Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob, he's identifying himself with those incredible promises. Those incredible promises that are still being fulfilled. Okay, They still haven't been completed. Everything that he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they hadn't been fulfilled. Okay, And for him to identify with people, unless they were still alive, it would make no sense, Jesus is saying. Because what? He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. It stands not on a verb tense, but on God's covenant and on His very character. Okay? Now lastly, I want us to understand a little bit more about the reality of the resurrection. What does it really mean for you and I today? Okay, Jesus argues with them that it's true. And He points out how it's been true even back in Exodus. Well, what is the reality of it? There are two verses that were really striking me hard as I was preparing, verse 25 and 26, the very beginnings of them. What, is, what does Jesus say? For when they rise from the dead, and as for the dead being raised, you, in, in both of those verses, what, what, is, what is he doing? He's assuming, and he's saying it with certainty. This is true. Just as true as he said three times previous in the Gospel of Mark, what has he said? That, on, that, that after three days, he will rise. Now he's saying it just as true that we will rise. That we will rise from the dead. It is God's plan. He also tells us that it's future, right? He says that word when. <laughs> when it takes place. When. The win is not now, it's not yet, okay? Those of our loved ones who have died, who've gone on to be with Christ, they're with Him now in the intermediate state is what we call it. But it's not the end state. It's not the goal. There's still more, and get this, even better to come for those who are in heaven right now with their heavenly Father with their Savior, Jesus Christ. There is even better things to come, and that longing and that looking forward to is, of course, that which is still future, which is the resurrection. Okay? The resurrection. That day when dead people will come out of their graves. Do you know how incredible that is? The dead people will come out of their graves. It seems inconceivable, doesn't it? I'm reminded of, of course, Princess Bride. You know what I'm talking about, many of you. The Vincini, the, the Sicilian criminal, right? And the, the man in black is pursuing them. And 
And he keeps thinking there's no way that he could follow him, right? What does he say over and over again? Inconceivable. For him, it's inconceivable that the man in black could ever follow him. His plans are so great, so greatly laid out. And of course, Inigo Montoya, what does he say? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable. Was the resurrection inconceivable for you? It was inconceivable for the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the power of God. The idea that the dead will come out of their graves, their souls reunited with their bodies for all of eternity. It's inconceivable, but it's true. That's what Jesus is telling us. It's inconceivable, but it's true. The dead will come out of their graves. And and in 1 Corinthians 15, it's almost as though Paul is talking to the Sadducees. He says this. He says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, that's the Sadducees, we of all people are most to be pitied. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's what we're talking about. That because Christ has come, because Christ died on the cross, because He rose from the dead on the third day, you and I will rise too. That is incredible. Do you understand how incredible it is? Don't miss this. In Revelation 7-9, we actually see a picture of it. Okay? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches, in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you know who that is? That's us if you're united to Christ. If you're in Him, if you know that when He died, you died, and when He rose, you rose. That's you. But there's more. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How is it that you're standing there? It's incredible. Not because you've done enough. Not because you've worked really hard at living a really good life. Not because you turned your life around at some point or another. Okay, there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. You can put all the, the, the shout and detergent, everything you want on yourself. It's not going to clean up your clothes. There's only one way. To be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That is the incredible nature of the resurrection. Now, we could stop there. But I think there's something more that we need to understand too because I think sometimes as we think of the resurrection, as we look forward to that new heavens and new earth, as we look forward to resurrection bodies, as we look forward to that future, I think sometimes we think far too small. 
You see, what's the greatest part of the resurrection? While it is incredible that what we just described is true, that we are that forgiven, that we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, there's something even more incredible, I think. Where do all things end? Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, what's the end game? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be their God. That is the end game. To be in his presence. To be with him. I fear that sometimes as, as we even long for and look forward to the resurrection, as we look forward to the life to come, I think sometimes we, we maybe long too much for the stuff that we think we're going to get. We long for the stuff of heaven, you know? And those will be wonderful things, and they're good things. Don't get me wrong. We think about our own satisfactions. and But I think there's a problem. If we long for that stuff more than we long for him. John Piper, just the other day, there was an article out just this past week. Um, John Piper was asked, what song would you like played at your funeral? Okay. And this is what he said. He said, according to actuary tables, this is the way I guess he thinks, according to actuary tables, um, I'm supposed to die when Steve Green's song, God and God Alone, turns 50. Okay. Um, that would, he, he's saying that, that would be a great song. He says, the first word uttered will be the word God. In that song, God and God Alone. And he goes on and he takes apart each of the verses, and he explains why he wants that song played at his funeral. And he gets to the fourth verse. Let me read the fourth verse, and then I'll share what he has to say about it. He says this, God, and God alone, will be the joy of our eternal home. He will be our one desire. Our hearts will never tire of God and God alone. This is what Piper says about this. Not heaven. Not escape from hell. Not forgiveness of sins. Not eternal life. Not the resurrection of the glorious body. Not reunion with loved ones. Not every tear removed. Not health restored. Not the inheritance of all things. Not even the new heavens and the new earth, but God and God alone will be the joy of our eternal home. He will welcome us into our, his joy. He will be the joy of all our joys. If you're like me, probably struggle to say those words and really mean it, right? But that should become more and more. Our longing, our longing as we, we, we look towards the resurrection, a longing not just for the stuff of it, which are wonderful, but the ultimate longing that we will be with Him, we get Him. Is that the longing of your heart? Let's pray.
Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for all the abundant benefits that will come and do come with the resurrection. Oh, would you help us less and less to long for the things of this world? Would you help us to stop being satisfied in them? Would you help us to learn more and more to be less satisfied in the things of this world and to be satisfied in you? And ultimately, that our longing, our longing as we look for and towards the resurrection, as we say those words, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that it would ultimately be because we long. We long to be with you because you are ultimately our heart's desire. Oh, Father, would you do your work on us this week? Would you teach our hearts to sing for your glory? And we pray this. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.